I do have a few guests with us this morning, but I want to point out a couple very special guests. They might hate me for this, but uh, some friends of mine popped in unexpectedly. Paul and Rachel Delaire and their daughter, Wesley, I knew Paul and Rachel in Portland. Uh, they knew uh, seven years ago and before. So Paul knew me. He was a seminary uh, associate of mine and knew me when I was single and before I had been refined uh, by Maggie and kids. So if you want to talk with him and learn any dirt you may have on me from the previous days. Uh, but I'm glad they, they just stopped in unexpectedly. And I'm sure he will have a wonderful critique for me afterwards as we chat. But it's joy to see you guys look like you haven't aged today. I don't know how you did that. We didn't, um, or at least I didn't. We're in Acts 9 this morning. We're going to cover verses 1 through 31. And as we begin, I'll ask you a question. It's a simple one. It's one that's been debated in different fields of study. And the simple question is, can people change? Can people change? In some senses, No. People kind of are who they are, uh, at least uh, some personality traits, maybe quirks and habits. There's some things that if you're born with it, you're probably going to die with that. That's just kind of who God made you to be. So this is one of those things you would tell uh, couples in premarital counseling, that if you expect you're going to be married and you are going to fix and change that person, you ought to be uh, prepared to be disappointed. There are some things that that is just that person. They're going to stick with them for the rest of their lives. So in some senses, people don't change. But on the other hand, we know that people can and do change. This has been a discussion in psychological and psychiatric fields for quite some time, whether or not people really change. Increasingly, we're finding that slowly people can indeed change. There's an article written by Catherine Ford, who's a therapist and medical doctor, and she writes that the brain, we're finding that the brain itself changes over time. Uh, the brain doesn't just change in youth, but actually changes over time in adults as they experience new things. Into the seventh and eighth decades, people's brains are still changing as they experience new things. Some have described this ability of the brain to change as neuroplasticity. Uh, Ford quotes another doctor, Louis Casalino, PhD and professor of psychology at Pepperdine University, who says, the brain is the organ whose mission is to constantly change itself. And of course, as Christians who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we know people can change. That is, in fact, at the very core of our faith, that God, through Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, can change people, can make people from sinners into saints, that he can make us like Christ, conforming us into his image. This is Christianity 101 and fundamental to our belief that God can and does, in fact, change people, change beliefs, change attitudes, change behaviors, change worldview, change morality because of the work of God in us. And still in the midst of daily life, that can be hard to believe. It can be hard to believe about ourselves. It can be hard to believe about others that God can actually change people. So I think it'll be helpful for our souls this morning to look at one of the um, prime examples of how God changes a person in Scripture this morning. This is one of the highlights in all of Scripture of God converting somebody from darkness to light. God radically changes an individual by the name 
of Saul. As we look at this passage of Saul's conversion, I want to ask, how does the Lord do it? How does the Lord transform the greatest sinner into a gospel servant? That's our driving question we'll answer this morning. How does the Lord transform the greatest sinner into a gospel servant? I want to see how God does this because if there's hope for Saul, there's hope for us. There's hope for anyone. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And I don't think Paul is just speaking flippantly or hyperbolically there. I think that's his actual belief. He knows what he's done. He knows that he was a murderer and a persecutor of the church. And he's saying, I am the worst of all sinners, and if the Lord can save me, if anyone deserves hell, it's Saul. And yet, God changes him. It shows us there's no one who's outside the hope of transformation in Christ. So let's walk through these 31 verses. We'll see just how the Lord does it. How does the Lord transform the greatest sinner into a gospel servant? And first, in verses 1 through 9, we see that Saul meets Jesus. This is where transformation begins. And in some ways, this is where transformation ends. Saul meets Jesus. It's where all true change, real change, lasting change, eternal change it is all wrapped up in meeting Jesus. Saul meets Jesus. Verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Our story here begins with Saul on the way to Damascus. And the purpose of his visit is to round up Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial and imprisonment. We've met Saul by now. We met him in Acts chapter 7 where he oversaw the stoning of Stephen. We know who he is. He is a persecutor of the church. The text depicts him as one breathing threats and murder. You almost get the picture of a dragon breathing fire, rage and fury, or a, a wolf huffing and puffing. full of rage, full of animosity towards this people that belong to the way. That's the, the way Luke describes them. I think Luke is the only one who uses this phrase, or this term, the way. In Acts 16, 17, he refers to Christianity as the way of salvation. 
in chapter 18, verses 25 through 26, he calls it the way of the Lord or the way of God. The meaning of this is that following Jesus is the way, the road, the path to find God. Jesus is the way to eternal glory in God. These people are followers of the way of Jesus Christ, and Saul is on a different way. He's on the way to Damascus. Uh, Damascus is one of the oldest cities in the world, about 135 miles north and a little bit west of Jerusalem in Syria, a prosperous commercial center with a large settlement of Jewish people. And Paul, or Saul, gets wind that there are a number of Jews there who have begun following Jesus Christ. So he gets permission. He gets essentially an arrest warrant from the high priest to go find them, round them up, and bring them back to Jerusalem. Although he doesn't quite make it there, at least not in the same way he had imagined, he has an encounter with the risen Jesus Christ on the way to Damascus. Uh, later on, in Acts 22.6, Paul will tell us that this happened about noon. So you can imagine how, how bright it would be at noon on the desert road to Damascus. And as bright as that noon, midday sun was, there was an even brighter light that appeared in the middle. Christ shines upon Saul so brightly, he's blinded and knocked down. And I want you to consider something as Saul's on his way. What direction is Saul going? I'm not asking geographically. I'm asking spiritually. Where is Saul headed at this moment? Where is the inclination of his heart, his mind, his attitude? Is Saul someone who is trying to find his way to God? Is Saul a seeker of the Lord? Is he on a journey towards God, just trying to figure it out? And Saul was what we all were, maybe some listening still are. Saul is a man running toward hell. He is on a path to condemnation. Not at all a friend of God. An enemy of the Lord. And Saul is going about as fast as you possibly can away from Jesus Christ. And it is there that the Lord meets him. You can think back upon your own story of coming to know the Lord and you can follow the journey and the breadcrumbs, but we tend to have, I think, maybe a distorted view about how God calls people or where we are before we meet Jesus. We kind of picture it as, um, I don't know, following up on Easter, an Easter egg hunt, and the Lord just kind of lays out some clues because he knows everybody's on a journey and everybody's on, on the mountain. Everybody's trying to find God. And that's where all people are. They're all just on their way towards God. Uh, then God leaves some clues for some people. And then those who are just smart enough and clever enough to find him, you know, they're the ones who find him at the end. And God says, oh, good, you found me. Welcome. The reality is, Every person who is ever born is sprinting towards hell, and God is at work reaching and calling people back. That is a far more accurate picture theologically what's going on when God calls people to faith. Sometimes it looks very gentle, like a very natural, gradual progression. 
but it's still the Lord calling nonetheless. Sometimes, like in the case with Saul, it is abrupt. And that's what happens here. Abruptly, the Lord calls Saul to himself. He plucks him out of the fire. Like Abraham, the Lord just called him out. He says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And two things I want you to think about here. First, he says, Saul, Saul. It's an affectionate, a repeated Saul. But a note about Saul's name. I want to clear up maybe a point of confusion. Saul does not get renamed Paul here. Look through the text. This is not like Abraham, where God calls Abraham, Abram, your name will now be Abraham. Uh, we tend to think, this is just a minor thing, it's not a big thing, but we tend to think that, oh, when Saul met Jesus, he became Paul. It's actually not the case. Saul and Paul are just two different names for the same person. Saul is the Hebrew version. Paul is the Greek version. So they can be used interchangeably. Uh, Later on, after he's converted, the scripture will still call him Saul at times. And, but what happens is, as he more and more focuses on his mission to Gentiles away from Jews, Paul becomes the name in usage, and that we more often refer to him as Paul. So it's not a name change, per se. It's just a Hebrew version of his name, Greek version of his name, Saul, Paul, both used interchangeably. I'll use them interchangeably as we go throughout the sermon. We can call him Saul or Paul. So his name isn't changed, but he is. And it begins with Jesus saying, why are you persecuting me? Which is not what you would expect Jesus to say right here. What would you expect Jesus to say? Saul, why are you persecuting Christians? Saul, why are you persecuting the church? That's not what Jesus says. What does he say? You're persecuting me. This is how closely Jesus identifies himself with his church. In Christ, we are united to him. So that when Saul attacks the church, he attacks Jesus himself. And you could say Jesus feels it when his church is attacked. Which is a great reminder for all of us. It's something I wish I could blast out on social media so all the Christians on social media would hear. When you attack your brother or sister in Christ, you fight Jesus. Stop. This is a, a warning for pastors and leaders in the church. When you hurt the church and use the church or abuse the church, you do this to Jesus himself. It's a warning for church members. When you gossip about the church, when you sow division in the church, when you neglect the church, when you despise the church, when you treat the church poorly, you do this to Jesus Christ himself because the church is his body. In the same way, when you give a cup of cold water to a brother, when you visit one in prison, Jesus says, you did that for me. And stuff. So what are you, 
God didn't do that for you. No. When you do this for one of the least of these, my brothers, you do this for me because Jesus identifies with the church. So how you love Jesus can be measured and assessed by how you love the church. If you truly love the Lord Jesus Christ, you will love his church. And you cannot say, well, I'm just going to love God, but I have no use for the church. Well, actually, you don't know the God you claim to worship. Unless you love the saints, the body of Jesus Christ. Saul didn't know Jesus, and he didn't know the Lord. And you can see that in his response. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? He has some understanding that I'm meeting with God, with the Lord. But he doesn't know who the Lord is. One of our panel participants said it this morning in the Sunday school hour, mentioning there's a difference between knowing about God and knowing him. Saul knew all about God, but he didn't know him. Why? Because he didn't know Jesus. You cannot know who the Lord is without knowing Jesus. So the Lord answers, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. And with that, Saul is converted. With that, Saul is converted and, in a sense, commissioned. And we'll see that more clearly. And I don't know exactly how long it took for Saul to realize what he had done. I don't know how long it took for Saul to realize this is Jesus Christ truly that I'm meeting. Would text will tell us that so he's going to go to Damascus, he's going to pray for three days and not eat. He's going to be fasting. So I think during that time he's praying and fasting and probably, I imagine, guessing grieving as he realizes what he has done. But all it takes is a genuine meeting with the Lord Jesus Christ and the greatest sinner is converted. And Saul's a changed man. It wasn't his great effort that converted him. It wasn't a series of classes that he took. It wasn't a personal study that changed his direction. It wasn't a new method of meditation. He didn't try out yoga or something. He didn't get into breathing routines. He didn't do um, essential oils. It wasn't podcasts. It wasn't a systematic theology that he read or a new diet. It wasn't any of those things that might be helpful for his body and soul. It wasn't anything he did. It was just meeting Jesus. And that was enough. What a wonderful thing for us to hear as we want to evangelize, we want to bring the gospel to the world. Our only task is to present Jesus to people. That's the key to it all. And this is what Christianity has to offer the world. It is Jesus himself. In many ways, it's not totally true, but in many ways, our ethics and our morals are repeated elsewhere in other faiths. Sometimes, more or less. In, in many ways, the community that we have uh, can be exemplified elsewhere in other spheres. And there might be spheres in your life where you actually feel more at home with you know, co-workers than you do the church in some ways. I understand that. But the, really, when it comes down to it, the one unique thing that we have to offer the world that nobody else can offer is Jesus Christ himself. We are his representatives, and we can bring people to the person of Jesus revealed through his word. And that is all it takes to convert the worst person. Meeting Jesus truly. Having done that, 
Saul's converted. He'll be commissioned. First, he's weakened. Those who were with him didn't really see or hear the full thing. They got a glimpse of it, but they didn't fully... It wasn't fully revealed to them, so they have to lead Saul into the city. He's blinded, he's knocked down, he's humbled. He's going to spend three days fasting. And there, Saul meets the church. That's what happens next in verses 10 through 19. First, Saul meets Jesus. Then, Saul meets the church. Because when we meet Jesus, we also meet the church. That's how God works this. That's what Saul experiences. In Ananias, Saul meets the church. Verse 10. Now, there's a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision. He has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Before Saul meets a man named Ananias, the Lord meets him. The Lord meets Ananias in a vision. You can see how the response of Ananias is different from the response of Saul's, because Ananias knows the Lord. Saul responded, who are you? Ananias responds, I'm here. What do you need? The Lord asks of Ananias, we'll stretch him. As far as we know, Ananias is, and maybe I'm wrong here, tell me if this is contradicted later in Acts, but I don't think Ananias comes up again or is a great figure or is an apostle or uh, well-known throughout history. He's just kind of a random, faithful servant. The Lord uses this moment. But he's got a big task to go visit Saul and help him regain his sight. Now, Ananias is a little concerned about this. Why? Because he's heard of Saul. If Saul's coming here, he's coming here for one reason only, and that's to round people like me up and take them off to prison or worse. Lord, are you sure about that? Saul is the worst of the worst. This would be not unlike telling a Jewish man in World War II Germany, I want you to go knock on the door of that SS officer's home. Lord, you're telling me to go stick my head in the mouth of a lion. I want you to go lay your hands on that lion. 
Pray for his healing and strength. What's he going to do once he's healed? Maybe I like him weakened where he's at. This is an incredible task that God has for Ananias. But it will show us that no one is beyond saving. No one is so bad that the Lord can't convert them. No one is so bad that the Lord can't humble them and make them a part of the family of God. We might ask, does God save bad people? And the answer is, those are the only kinds of people he saves. There are no other kinds of people. The Lord assures Ananias, go, he's a chosen instrument of mine. In other words, he's going to be a tool for Jesus. Those of you in jobs like construction, plumbing, roofing, whatever it may be, you know the importance of having the right tool. God has determined that Saul is going to be the right tool for this job. And the job will be suffering. Saul is going to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. The Lord says, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Ananias, you're going to go help this man. He came powerful and strong and huffing and puffing. I have weakened him. And all that power is going to be taken away. And he's going to now go and suffer for me. When I was in college, I was involved in a campus ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, It's been shortened now to crew because the word crusade does not always play well on college campuses. In the old days, it meant rally. Uh, Now, the only association is genocide and colonialism. So, they changed their name to crew, uh, but it was Campus Crusade for Christ. Probably a wise move. Uh, And and I really enjoyed my time being a part of Campus Crusade for Christ. It was there at a college campus. I met a lot of young men and women who were serious about their faith, serious about evangelism. I spent a year interning with Campus Crusade for Christ in Seattle. Loved my time with them. Learned a lot. Um, so I have almost nothing but good things to say about Campus Crusade for Christ. But there's one thing I have a nitpick with. You may have heard this. I'm not even sure if they still use this, honestly. But they have a gospel tract, a booklet, called The Four Spiritual Laws. And some of you may know what I'm talking about when I say that. It's a, uh, a way to share Christ with people. Pretty good overall. But there's four principles that you walk people through to, to introduce them to the Lord. And the problem I have with the four spiritual laws is the first one. Because the first one says, here's how you're supposed to start off with your gospel presentation. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Which is true. Theologically, and since God loves all people, and for all people, he has a pretty wonderful and awesome plan that will bring him glory in the end. But it's a little misleading. Because God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life sounds very different than, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. Those are two different messages. One kind of appeals to our... um, desire for prosperity. The other is humbling and says, you're not Lord. And to follow me, you're going to have to die. That's the message for Saul. You're going to suffer for my name. I don't think, I could be wrong, I don't think 
This is God being vindictive, saying you are a great persecutor, and now you're going to suffer for it for the rest of your life. I don't think that's the case. I think this is just God's chosen instrument for his purposes. He has chosen Saul to have a particularly difficult mission. And he will suffer. Beatings, imprisonment, abandonment, betrayal. Saul will face it all. But it's the kind of calling all of us have. If you're going to follow Jesus Christ, don't expect comfort all the way. God does love you. He does have a wonderful plan for your life. But it will include denying yourself and taking up your cross. There's no path to glory that doesn't first lead through the cross of suffering. And for Paul and Saul, he will see It's worth it. You'll be committed that suffering all through life, being beaten, being imprisoned, is far better than having all the power in this world and not knowing Jesus. He'll be brought low and humbled, and that is why he'll need the ministry of the church, and that happens here. Ananias goes and visits Saul. And I do wonder what kind of tension was in that room. As Ananias entered, and he's there with a man named Judas. And he sees this blind man who hasn't eaten in three days, who's been fasting and praying. Something like scales on his eyes. And I wonder if there was still fear in him This is the man responsible for so much hurt, pain for Christians. And I wonder what the room was like as Ananias laid his hands on him and called him brother. You who were our greatest enemy. Now in Jesus Christ, my brother. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's what forgiveness and reconciliation looks like in the Lord. Saul's made part of the family. He receives the Spirit. He's baptized, showing he's entered into the community of faith. The scales fall off his eyes. He's given food, and he is strengthened. It's what it means to be welcomed into the church. Forgiven, empowered, strengthened, restored. I can't help but think that God could have done all this. God could have appeared to him, and Jesus could have appeared on the road. Jesus could have done everything that Ananias did. In fact, Ananias was doing Jesus' work. through right. But there on the road, Jesus could have done it all. God knows how to like, minister to hurting people. He could have blinded him, then restored his sight. He could have given him food. Talk to Elijah. He knows what it's like to go off in a quiet place somewhere, need food, and for an angel to come and minister to him. God can send an angel. That's not what God did here. He sent the church. He sent Ananias. 
Why? I have to think that's intentional. I have to think that God is orchestrating this for a reason. He appeared in the vision of Ananias. He appeared in the vision of Saul. He says, I want you two to meet. Why? Because you're going to need each other, because nobody does this alone. If you're going to be a, a, a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're going to be on mission for Jesus Christ, you're not going to do this alone. You're actually going to need to be strengthened and empowered and equipped by the church. This is how this works. And Ananias, it's going to be really good for you to see just how powerful I am in converting the worst kind of people. This is a blessing to both of them, blessing for all. And this is what happens. This is how um, God converts sinners and makes them godly servants and servants of the gospel. They are equipped by, uh, restored by, reconciled with, and engaged with, and nursed by the church. If you want to be somebody who serves the Lord well, and I hope that's the desire of your heart, this is the desire of my heart, you're going to have to do that with the church. And there will be times where you're going to be like Paul, humbled, blind, not knowing what to do, waiting for some direction to go next, and you're going to need somebody else in the church to lay hands on you and say, hey, Lord sent me. How can I help? I think there's real intention behind the Lord orchestrating this so that they would be connected together and built up. Because as we're going to see next, Saul's going to need the church very applicably. And the church will be the nurturing environment for all new Christians and those who want to follow Jesus. Let's see how the church continues to nurture Saul as Saul meets opposition. That's what happens in the last few verses of this passage, uh, starting in 19b through 31. Saul has met the Lord Jesus, he's met the church, and now Saul meets opposition. Verse 19. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? Upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. We'll stop there. There are these two chunks here, verses that kind of go in two cycles of Saul doing the same thing. Going out and preaching, facing opposition, church helps. So he does it here first in Damascus. He's going to stay with the church a while there. He ministers in the synagogues. Those are the houses of worship. They're the center of Jewish life, and that's where kind of conversation happens amongst the Jews. So that's where Saul goes. And he goes, and what is his message? Look at the verses. What is the message of Saul? Verse 20, he proclaimed Jesus. Verse 22, verse 20 says he's the son of God. And verse 22, proving that Jesus was the Christ. This is the consistent message all throughout Acts of the apostles. The message is Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. Same message the apostles preached when asked what was going on with the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. And what is all this? And Peter stands up and he explains to them how Jesus is the Messiah. And that's why the Spirit has come. Same message that Stephen preached that got him killed. He preached Jesus, the Lord on high. Same message that Philip preached to the Ethiopian. Who's this Isaiah 53 talking about? That's about Jesus Christ. 
And here Saul has the same message, proving that Jesus was the Messiah the Old Testament talked about. Who is the prophet that Moses predicted? It was Jesus. Who is the shepherd that God will send, as promised in Ezekiel 34? That's Jesus. Who is the king who will rule the nations, according to Psalm 2? Well, that's Jesus Christ. Who is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace? It's Jesus, and that's what Saul is doing. He's giving the Bible study, saying, open up your Old Testament. It's all about Jesus Christ. And that is, this might seem simple and obvious, but I think it's important. This is the apostolic method for growing the church and for witnessing to the nations. It is proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I say that because it is very easy for us to get off message and to be consumed with other things. I want to say this carefully so you know what I'm saying as I say it. I assume that in Damascus and in any other city where the apostles go and proclaim Jesus, I assume that there are great social ills and evils there. I assume there is brokenness and sin in every community. And yet, as you go through the book of Acts, you will hear so little about it. Why? because it wasn't the primary mission of the apostles to transform the city. It was the primary mission of the apostles to proclaim Jesus Christ for the salvation of souls. Does that mean we don't do social things? No. As Christians, we're citizens of the kingdom of God. Everywhere we live and go ought to be better because of us. So... It's why we have outreach projects every month, because this is part of who we are as followers of Jesus. Paul will say later, they charged me to remember the poor, the very thing I was willing to do. Didn't even have to tell me. That's, about, that's what I was about. But as you go through the book of Acts, you will not see a social transformation agenda. What you will see is a proclamation of Jesus Christ's mission. Because... That is how the gospel spreads, how the church grows, and how people are one to the Lord. It's how the greatest sinners are converted. They proclaim Jesus Christ, and that was Saul's mission. And it almost got him killed multiple times until eventually it did get him killed. But here, the church intervenes. There's walls around the city, and there are people looking by the gate saying, okay, watch as he goes in and out. We're going to find him and take him. And they let him out. They're kind of like um, getting somebody through the border, through the trunk in a car. Like, it's the same thing. His disciples do. He already has disciples by this point. It's crazy. But his disciples lower him through a hole in the wall, and he escapes. So what does he do? Well, he goes back to preaching. He just does it in a different place now. He makes his way back up to Jerusalem, verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. They were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, 
they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. After some time, Saul makes his way back to Jerusalem finally. He doesn't have Christians bound like he was supposed to. Instead, he comes with the gospel of Christ. This is actually probably about three years later, if you read Galatians 1, 17 through 18, indicates that Saul first stayed in Damascus, then he went to Arabia, and then maybe back to Damascus, and then finally, after about three years, he goes up to Jerusalem. And the Jerusalem disciples, apostles, are a little hesitant, understandably. We can imagine if today Vladimir Putin said, I want you to welcome me to America. I'm a big friend of you all. I love the West. I love Western capitalism. And, and I am here for your good. We would all be, hopefully, rightfully, a little bit skeptical. Right? The disciples have the same kind of feeling towards Saul. Except one says, I think this guy's good. Barnabas. So fitting with his character. Barnabas, who is the encourager, the son of encouragement. Barnabas vouches for Saul. And I'll be honest, I have no idea how Barnabas was able to discern or what he knew that gave him trust and confidence in being able to say, no, Saul's with us. Somehow, Barnabas, I don't know, through his optimism, through his believing the best of others, love, spirit speaking to him, I don't know how, but somehow he knew this is what Saul has done. He's one of us. And when Barnabas says he's good, the rest of the church says, okay which tells you something about Barnabas' reputation. It's kind of the power that kindness has. If you're good with Barnabas, you're good with the rest of us. So Saul's able to go in and out among them, and that's what he does, and he goes and he proclaims. He's preaching, disputing with the Hellenists. The Hellenists were, again, uh, Greek-speaking Jews. Um, Saul was there, not just proclaiming, not just teaching, Arguing, disputing, he's making a case. He's refuting arguments. This is part of what it means to preach Jesus, is sometimes to be contrary. No, that's wrong. This is right. This is who Jesus is. Paul will say later in 2 Corinthians 10 and 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So Saul is not passive in his proclamation. He is able to call a spade a spade. He is able to say, this is wrong. This is right. This is who Jesus is. He is not a good postmodern. He disputes. He has the discernment and the courage to do this. So when somebody comes knocking on his door and wants to talk to him about how Jesus Christ isn't actually the Son of God and he's not actually divine, and if you too actually can follow Jesus, and you can be divine like him if you just follow what the Watchtower says or any other cult might say, Saul has the discernment to say, actually, that's not right at all. He's able to dispute because he knows who Jesus is. Able to discern between truth and error. And that'll get him in hot water. He'll face opposition again. So instead of letting him through a hole in the wall, they just ship him off. <laughs> the brothers and sisters of the church say, Saul, it's no longer safe for you here. They send him off to his home of Tarsus. You know what I love about this? It's maybe an argument from silence, but I don't get the impression all the other Christians around Saul were saying, now Saul, what did you do to save 
What did you do and say to make them so mad? Saul, how come you're so persnickety? Don't you know that doctrine divides Saul? Don't we want to have a good reputation, a good witness amongst these people? And here you are just taking them off. No. They have Saul's back. They're not tone policing Saul. They understand that the truth of Jesus Christ is by nature offensive. That doesn't mean we need to be offensive in our composure. But if we are going to be faithful to Jesus Christ, we will meet opposition. Maybe not as strongly as Saul did. But if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, at some point you're going to be opposed because of it. And the church knew this. So they helped Saul and they had his back. They didn't join the opposition and sling arrows at him so they didn't have their own reputation tarnished, which is what I see a lot of in the church today. They stood with their brother, cared for him. And as they cared for Saul, God cared for the church. In fact, Saul's conversion was part of how God cared for the church. He gave them a time of peace as he took away their greatest opponent. This happens throughout church history. Times where the church is persecuted and sharpened, and then times where there's peace so the church can grow, and there's this kind of conflating and growing and sharpening and expanding that happens according to God's rhythms. We tend to look back at one point and say, well, that's when the church says it's best, or that's when the church says that's Really, this is just how God works. He gives times of sharpening and persecution, and then he gives time where the church is free to kind of grow and expand. And that's what happens here, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. It's easier to build up when there's peace. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And God ordained that his church would grow through his care for it, even in the midst of opposition. So we asked in the beginning, how does the Lord transform the greatest sinner into a gospel servant? And we see how it happened for Saul. First, he met Jesus, and he was converted and commissioned. Then he met the church. He was strengthened, restored, equipped. And then he met opposition on his mission to serve Jesus Christ. This is the story, I think, of everyone who follows Jesus. Converted, commissioned, strengthened, equipped, restored in the church, and then as you're built up and restored, you're going to face opposition, but the church will be there for you, and God will oversee it all. And maybe as you end, you might sit there and wonder, like, this still doesn't seem fair, right? Saul just gets to go and be a hero, write a lot of the New Testament, looked back upon fondly, when he spent the beginning of his years murdering and imprisoning men and women. They say it's not fair. It's grace. It's what the gospel does. It takes horrible, sinful people, forgives them, reconciles them in Jesus Christ, makes them godly servants to the praise and honor and glory of a God who is really, really gracious with us. And that's the good news. The church will preach and what Paul it would consume Paul for the rest of his days.
Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we're really thankful for your grace. It's a grace that is given and passed on through the person of Jesus Christ. Pray, Lord, that we would be, like Paul, instruments for your grace going out to the world, to our family members, to co-workers, to friends, that we would be able to introduce Jesus to them so that all of us and everybody we meet might be able to come to know him and be forgiven, be reconciled to know their own need of a Savior. And to know the freedom of forgiveness and the joy and fellowship of the church and being able to call one another brother and sister in the Lord. Lord, build us up for this life, for this mission of proclaiming Jesus. Thank you that you forgive bad people. If there's hope for somebody like Saul, there's hope for all of us and anybody we might know who needs the Lord. Thank you for being a good and faithful and forgiving God. Amen.